What kind of message does God send by keeping the church in the midst of a broken world? It's not to sit and wait, but for the church to be a road marker for others who are searching for hope. Join Dr. Brown as he looks at today's passage and draws out the truth of who God expects the church to be. This is Hearing is Believing. We used to say this, remember? Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, and you see all the people. Good to see you. How you doing? Yeah. Close the doors, hear them pray, open the doors, and they all walk away. And we used to say that little thing. Maybe that's the first time you've heard it. Congratulations. I'm glad that I could introduce that to you for the first time. But you heard those things, and we did those things to evoke a response, even from an early age, trying to answer the question, what's the church? So I want to ask you this morning, what do you think of when you think of the church? Our church was uh, able to go and to my hometown this past week and where uh, F4 tornado came through the historic section and some of the other sections of the town and uh, cut a 39-mile path for, with 170-mile-an-hour winds and just brought a lot of destruction. And we were able to work with Samaritan's Purse. And if you've ever worked with Samaritan's Purse, you know that they're a well-oiled machine. Man, it's like you go there, you do that, yes, sir, get it done. And at the end of the day, you have share time, and you get together with other workers who are out in the field, and you talk about what impacted you the most on that day. And I remember the first night that we were there, there was a student from Liberty University up in Virginia, and he testified Here's what he said, I was not in a good place with God prior to coming here. And then he said this, I thought that the church was just people pouring into themselves. That's an interesting way to think about the church, isn't it? People pouring into themselves. And then he said this, then I met you, and I see that you're pouring yourself into others. I see that you care. He said, after seeing you, I think that I'm close to God again. I want to take you to Thessalonians again this morning. Take your Bible and join me in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Go all the way to the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we come down to the last few considerations in our series as we're going to look this week at the final instructions that Paul gives to the church. As well as next week, we're going to look at the benediction, but the concluding encouragement that we're going to look at at this letter is amazing. And it's particularly amazing because of what happened before. Remember, Paul, he gives these, this word to the church of Jesus is coming. He tells them to get ready for the coming day of the Lord. And after he gives all of that, he gives them another word. He gives them their marching orders to hold fast, to plow ahead, and to stay on course for the eternal destination of God. So after the thought of Jesus coming, and this is what I want you to see, after that thought of the glorious expectation of Christ's return, after this assurance that He's indeed coming, Paul gives us a word for the church. And the word for the church is not sit, watch, 
and wait. The word for the church is to get involved, to plow ahead. As you're following Jesus, putting one foot in front of the other, you're going to go through life, and you're going to experience hardship. And in the case of the Thessalonians in particular, there's, there's persecution. But you do all that you do in Jesus' name, in His power, for His glory, with this expectation ever before you, this expectation of pure joy. And so let the assurance of an empty tomb, Paul says, let the assurance of a Christ who's left, who ascended on high, a Christ who promised as He left that not only would He send the Spirit in the meantime, but one day He would come again. And let that expectation settle your heart, guard your minds, and establish you as you walk along the way. You see, listen, God has left us here, the church as hope in the middle of a broken world. Yes, you are the hope that the world looks for and longs for. You get to show the world however fleeting of a glimpse, a glimpse, even though it's through a glass dimly and darkly, you and I, as we gather together, as we go out, as we live this life that God has called us to, we get to give the world a taste of an eternal city where people keep festival before the face of God forever. So let's read the Bible together this morning. Let's see what the Word is for us from God. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, and we'll go all the way through verse 22. Hear the Word of God. We ask you, brethren, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brethren, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your message. I pray that I would faithfully communicate it today. We ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we see the beauty of Jesus through this passage and give glory to you, our Father, who art in heaven, whose name is Hallowed. In Jesus' name, amen. So look at the end. At the end of this letter, we see familiar phrases, all connecting us back to this tone that Paul is striking. 
this tone of mutual affection, this brotherly care and concern for one another. You see, there's a road that Christ has called us to travel, a road that all of us are embarked upon if we follow Jesus. I'll never forget my missions professor at Southeastern, uh, Dr. Ant Greenham. He was formerly an ambassador from South Africa, so he spoke with a great South African accent. But Dr. Greenham, he said a disciple is defined as one who is irrevocably embarked on the Jesus way. I like that. A disciple is someone who is irrevocably embarked on the Jesus way. And so there is this path that Christ has called us to travel, and it's a road marked, listen, with trials and temptations, but it's a road that leads to eternal glory. But along the way, to interrupt our joy, there's trials, there's temptations. You see, Christ has called us. He says, follow me. And remember, in the context of the Gospels, when He said, follow me, He's on His way to Jerusalem. He's on His way to the cross. But that's not the whole story, is it? It's not just the cross, is it? There's also the resurrection, isn't there? But there's not just the resurrection. There's also the ascension where he fulfills Psalm 10. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. And then there's not only that, there's also this anticipation that he's left us with after he seals us and empowers us with the Spirit. He leaves us with this anticipation that Jesus is going to come again. And as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he is the fulfillment of that because he's going to bring it. So we're called to walk this road where He walks beside us and within us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Both of those things are true. He calls us to follow, and then He doesn't leave us as orphans. He says, I've given you the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus says as we walk along that road, He says, narrow is the way that leads to life. I don't know if how many of you have ever read The Pilgrim's Progress. I really highly commend it to you. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers ever, uh, he said that outside the Bible, the Pilgrim's Progress was his most trusted companion, that he kept close to him. I bought this particular version. It's, uh, it's, it's, the reason I bought it is because it has pictures in it. It's got great pictures, and so I read it to my children often, and my little Ezra, my little four-year-old, you know, he likes to find this particular picture that I probably won't be able to find now, but there's Pilgrim in the armor, and he's, he's fighting Apollyon, you know, and uh, it's just a glorious book. But anyway, Pilgrim, or John Bunyan, writes this story, and in Pilgrim's progress, Pilgrim, he meets his, on the road, he meets this first character first. His name is Evangelist, Evangelist. And this evangelist is, is great. This evangelist tells him of the coming judgment of the Lord. And that's exactly what Paul did, does here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 10. And to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so, Bunyan does exactly what Paul does when Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He warns them to flee from the wrath to come. And so I love this. Let me just read a section for you. Paul, our pilgrim, says to evangelists, he says, I understand from reading the book in my hand 
that I'm condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. I'm not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. Then Evangelist asked, why are you not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, because I'm afraid that this burden that is on my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into hell. And sir, continued the man, if I am not ready to die, then I am not prepared to go to judgment and from there to execution. Thinking about these things distresses me greatly. Then Evangelist said, if this is your condition, why are you standing still? The man responded, because I do not know where to go. Then Evangelist gave him a parchment and unrolled it so that the man could read, flee from the wrath to come. When he read it, the man looked at Evangelist very carefully and said, which way should I run? Then Evangelist, pointing with his finger to a very wide field, asked, do you see the distant narrow gate? No, the man replied. Then Evangelist asked, Do you see the distant shining light? I think I do, the man answered. Then Evangelist said, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly toward it, and soon you'll see the narrow gate. And when you finally come to the gate, knock, and you will be told what to do. You see, we this morning are pilgrims on the way. And God has left us here. Listen carefully. God has left us here as road markers to the eternal city of God. Did you hear that? Not only are we pilgrims on the way, but we're also the road markers for others along the way. Road markers, our lives shining brightly as lamps in the world, Jesus says. To let people know that as they pass this direction, maybe going in the opposite way, as maybe they're on a path far from you, our lives, as messy as they are, as mangled as they are in some cases, are reminding others, pointing others to the eternal city of God. We, as the church, are part of the expectation and hope that the world is longing for. That's who we are. You see, the world is looking for authenticity. There is nothing more authentic than the message of God's grace that says, come just as you are, broken. The world is looking for love. There is nothing more loving than the message of a God who sends His only begotten Son to the world so that He could die, so that when the Son of Man is lifted up, He would draw all men to Himself. There's nothing more loving than the message of the cross of Christ, Christ crucified for the sin of the world, for my sin, for your sin. There's nothing the world is longing for belonging, and there's nothing like belonging with the forgiven. The world is looking for truth, joy, and hope. And God says, I'm going to give the world a gift. Here's the church. Some of you object, and you may be sitting here and say, well, that sounds really great, but you don't know what I've been through in church. Maybe you're watching online this morning, and you say, 
I'm not interested in church. I've done that too many times. I've been hurt too many times by people who say they belong to Jesus. And let me just speak personally to you real quick. I understand you're hurt because I've been hurt too. You see, I'm in a place as a pastor. I get to see the inside of church life. I get to see what happens in a church when the church is squeezed and what comes out. Sometimes it oozes with grace. Other times it is messy. But you know what else is there? Amidst all of the mess is a message. And it's a message that God has entrusted to the church. It's a message of marvelous grace. Grace that covers a multitude of sin. It's a message of the way, the truth, and the life. God gives the world, the church, beautifully broken. God says, through the church, as weak as she is, as flawed as she is, I'm going to teach the world how to believe. I'm going to teach the world how to hope. Through the church, God says, I'm going to demonstrate my power and show just how much I love the world. Because you know as well as I do, if God can love me, He can love anybody. So what I want to do in this passage in the time that we have, I want us to look at this passage What I want to do is I want to draw from the passage the truth of who we are as God's church as well as the truth of who God expects us to be, both of those things. It's who we are, it's as well as who God expects us to be. So here's the church. This is the presentation. Here's the church. Number one, we lead with love. We lead with love. Look at the text. I love this. Here's the mighty apostle Paul who has a request for respect, a request for respect for those who are leaders of the church. Now, listen, the leaders is not just a blank check to say, you know, I'm the leader. I remember a a mentor of mine telling me, he said, Andy, if it's lonely at the top, that's probably because you're not at the top. And he would say, or we would say, according to the Bible, that leaders aren't just leaders without any qualification. What makes you a leader? It's not because of how much money you give, not because of how long you've been here. It's not because of who your mama and daddy were that came here. None of those things. Not because of your position or some title that somebody's given you. You know what it means to be a leader in the church? Look at it. Look at the Bible. To respect those who do what? Labor. You see that? Labor. The leaders of the church are those who work. Being a leader in the church only comes through hard work, not because of your pedigree, not because of your position, but because of hard work. My first church, I'll never forget someone telling me, you want to lead the church? You got to get out front. You want to lead the church? You got to lead by example. I have my dad to remind me often of General Omar Bradley. Some of you know who that is. 
He was that World War II general that was known as the People's General. You know why he was the People's General? Because it was, the soldiers would tell stories of this two- and three-star general during World War II who would go and, and sleep in the barracks with his troops, who would put himself in harm's way to be amongst the troops, to go into the foxhole, so to speak, and be right there. You're a leader in the church, not because you deserve some title or respect. You're a leader in the church because of hard work. You're rolling your sleeves up, getting dirty, because you realize that there's a lot of work to do. But notice what else these leaders do. They, they admonish. You see that in the Bible? They admonish. What does that mean? It means that they instruct or they warn. One of the most challenging things about being a pastor is the admonishing part. Telling people what they need to hear even when they don't want to hear what you have to say. (laughs) Telling people what they need to hear and being able to do so lovingly, not to prove you're right, to prove them wrong but to admonish and carry them along. And it takes real care for someone else to be willing to do what's best for them, even if it's not best for you. I've told people some things before as a pastor that they got upset about. And it was the truth. And they needed to hear it. And there was a time, of course, in every pastor where you say some things and some people don't like what you say and they get mad at you. You just have to deal with it because that's what leaders do. Leaders admonish. They instruct. But there again, there's a qualification. It's not just simply a self-concern that leaders have. No, no, no. Leadership's about hard work. And so, There's little room for self-concern if we're called, and I say that purposefully, if we are called into the sacrificial ministry of serving others in Jesus' name. And I'm going to make that point a little clearer in just a minute, but I want that to sink in just for a minute. It's that this is what we are called to do. You remember Jesus. Jesus, He laid out the model of what a good shepherd does. He He said, a shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's a contrast. Remember those other people that he ran in contact with, these Pharisees, these people who were whitewashed tombs, he called them, full of dead men's bones, brood of vipers. Oh, that's Jesus telling these people, hey, there's something that you're doing that's not right. He says, as opposed to those leaders that you've been accustomed to, that they think of themselves before they think of you, Jesus says, I'm going to lay down my life for you so that you'll know how much I love you. But look closer. Look particularly at verse 14. The hard work isn't just for the leaders. There's a request for respect, and again, it is a request. This is Paul's ask. Look at what he says. Respect, esteem them highly in love, and be at peace amongst yourselves. Sometimes, if we're honest, it takes real work to follow, doesn't it? It takes real work sometimes to be a follower. And oftentimes two sources of conflict in the church. It's leaders who won't lead and followers who won't follow. That's pretty simple. 
Two sources of conflict in the church. There are leaders who won't lead, and there's followers who won't follow. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is even simpler than that. It's leaders who follow and followers who follow. It's leaders who lead, rather, and followers who follow. You say, well, how do leaders lead? They lead with hard work, and they always lead in the right direction. How do, follow, how do followers follow? Well, look at the Bible. They do it respectfully, lovingly, and peaceably. And let me say this. Sometimes you'll have to lead in order to follow. So here is the biblical formula for success. You ready for it? Successful ministry. Lead and follow and do so the right way. Do it with love. Let me show you the foundation for this relationship. It's found a few verses earlier. Look at chapter 5. Look at verse 8 through 11. Here's the foundation for this, what Paul is calling us to do. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with Him. And then look at this, verse 11. Therefore, encourage and build one another up, just as you're doing. And so verses 12 through 23 tell us how we encourage and build one another up. And in order to build one another up, it takes leaders, who fo- leaders and followers, and they do so lovingly. You see, we lead with love. Or perhaps I should say it a different way. We lead in love. It's amazing to me all the discord that we have in Washington, D.C., all the discord that we see with people externally that can't get along, family discord. And you know what we should be experiencing as the church? We should be experiencing people knocking on our door saying, how do you guys do it? You don't always agree. You don't always see things eye to eye, but you've got the, bottom, the solid bottom line right. You're leading not just with love, but in love. We have the market on love because we have a, a demonstration of a God who loves us and sent His Son to die for us. Isn't that what the Bible says? It says you're not destined for wrath. Why are we going to pour wrath on each other? Instead, you have this beautiful vision of this Christ who has given us salvation because He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with Him. That's our expectation. Jesus, leading not only with love, but leading in love. It's amazing to me that, you know, our churches sometimes can, some of the groups that we get involved with, can sometimes look more and more like Fox News and CNN than the the Church of Jesus Christ. How are we going to cut through all of that? The world doesn't need another Fox News. They've got that. The world doesn't need another CNN. They've got that. 
How can we transcend those things? We can lead in love. God has gifted the church, gifted the world. He's gifted the church. He's gifted the world by giving the church. We lead with love. Number two this morning, we do good for one another. We do good for one another. And notice these are flowing together. Not only do we lead with love, but we do good for one another. And notice this connection. I want you to see this because preachers really love this. This verse 14, this and. This is another one of my hardest jobs as a minister to convince you that you are called to ministry. It's not just me. It's not just Nathan and Neil, not just Tom, Clifton, Chair, excuse me, Charity, Blair. It's not just us. It's all of us. We are called to ministry. But look at this. What are we urged to do? Look at this. We're first to admonish the idle, those who are not engaged, those who are sitting on the sidelines. We call them in the Baptist world pew warmers. You heard of bench warmers? Well, we have pew warmers. These people who are not engaged, we want them to get in the game, to get involved. And really, my English standard version is really glossing over the Greek. The Greek is a little more harsh. Another word for idle is lazy, undisciplined. Maybe you've heard of the the 2080 rule. Have you heard of that rule? It's where 20% do 80% of the work. You heard of that rule? Some of our volunteers here at this church, they're stretched thin. We need some help. I want to make a personal plea to you on behalf of VBS. You know, VBS is one of our most dynamic ways to reach the next generation here at our church. Last year, VBS was different. We're going to do it this way this year. We're going to do it this year that's going to resemble what we've done in the past. And we need you to be there. We want to encourage you to get involved, to volunteer. Here's your opportunity, a fresh one, to turn idleness to productivity. You go behind us as we dismiss, and you'll see that there's a lot of black X's on that board of volunteers. You know what that means? It means that Blair and Charity are waiting on volunteers. You know what happens when they get those volunteers? Then we can begin to plan and get that steam engine rolling fast and hard. I want to encourage you this morning. Don't wait. Hear the preacher admonishing you this morning. Get to work for Jesus. And the honest truth is that we use a lot of volunteers here a great deal. We're so grateful for our volunteers, and we're so glad for them. And let me say this on their behalf. None of our volunteers at this church have a spot that they can't fill with someone else. In other words, and maybe this is news to them, but it might not be, hopefully, none of them have, ministry, have the market on the ministry that they volunteer in. We can always make room for more. We can always make room for you. We always need more help. And the question that I want to ask you this morning is, how are you going to help? What are you going to do? You know, every week we have a little over a thousand people on our campus. As a pastor, I just imagine what we could do as a church if just a few more were ready to serve. I'm asking you to dream this morning. I'm asking you, what new groups 
could we start if you were willing to volunteer? What new ministries could we start if we had just a few more volunteers? I'm asking you this morning, how will you lead? What passions do you have that are just waiting to be unleashed upon this community? Shake off your idleness this morning. Start by asking God what He wants you to do, and then start doing it. Some of you say, well, if somebody would ask me, I would, I'm asking you. I am asking you to do it, and I'm asking you in Jesus' name. Notice the outline. I love this. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I love that. Because you know what that, that list tells me? There's room for gospel-rich, gospel-driven ministry at our church. Look at this. Look at it. For the lazy, there's admonishing. For the faint-hearted, there's encouragement. For the weak, there's help. And for all, there's patience. Now, that pretty much sums all of us, I think. Some of you here are lazy. Well, there's admonishment. Some of you here are faint-hearted. There's encouragement. Some of you here are weak. Well, there's help. Some of you this morning, you need patience. Well, that's there for you too. Here's the church, God says. And here's the beautiful thing about the church. As we talk about patience with all, here's the beautiful thing of the church. Are you listening? You can't get fired as a church member. Because we're called to encourage one another. We're called to build one another up. Look at the Bible. It says, don't repay evil even if you've been on the receiving end of evil. Instead, what's it say? Look at, look at the word. Seek. Seek. Don't just stumble upon, but insist. The best good that you and I can do for each other is to stir one another up for good deeds. And that's the message of the author of Hebrews. This is what he says. Let us consider how to stir up one another and love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't know about you, but I look at the headlines, and it makes me want to say something when I read the headlines of another mass shooting. Read the headlines of another disaster, of another tornado, of another volcano, of another hurricane. It makes me want to say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that's what we're here for. Our coming together, our interacting with each other is God's plan to present the world, to give to the world a visible witness of His glory. And when you and I come together, there's a number of things that we do that mark our coming together, and I want to lay them out for you very quickly in verses 16 through 22. You see, here's the church. We lead with love. We do good for one another. And number three, we, we are who we are. We are who we are. You see, there, there are road markers that make us who we are. But those road markers are not just simply for us, but they're for others. And looking at verses 16 through 22, those, those verses, they come at us fast and hard. And I don't want us to miss 
how what Paul says at the end fits in the overall picture of what he's saying. After giving the assurance of, ex- of the expectation of our great joy, we have these final instructions. And the final instructions deal with us who are in between the times. That's where we are. We're in between the times of Christ's first coming with the anticipation that He's coming again. So we're in between those two times. But we aren't just waiting. We're rehearsing. You and I are preparing right now for eternity. And we do so in a certain way. A certain way that reveals our hope. Let's look very quickly. I'm just going to walk through this. Look at what we're doing. We're rejoicing always. We are praying without ceasing. We're giving thanks in all circumstances. And we're told that we give thanks because we're trusting God's will for us. We're not quenching the Spirit. What a beautiful word image. We're not quenching the Spirit, and it's only appropriate that we think about fire when we think about the Holy Spirit, because that's how we came on the day of Pentecost. We're not quenching the Spirit. Instead, He burns bright in our hearts as He consumes us from the inside out, sort of like what happens in the church. We get consumed on the inside, then we go out. We're not pouring in ourselves on one another. We're asking to be filled up so that we can pour it out to others beginning here and then there. But also, look, we're listening to God and not opposing prophecies, but being discerning, not just taking anybody's word for it, but testing what people say through God's Word. And what doesn't match God's Word, we let go of. We learn how to do that. We learn the skills of not taking somebody's word for it, but testing it to what God says. We're abstaining from every evil even every form of evil. We are who we are. We're the church. We are those who have been entrusted with this message of hope, transferred from one kingdom to another, from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. And all of this is because of Jesus. You see, this Jesus calls us to be lights in the world, and our light of the gospel points people away from the jagged rocks of despair to the eternal shores of God's glory. God leaves us here as hope to remind people of the one who is hope. You see, we're hoping in Jesus, and our hoping in Jesus gives hope to the world. We belong to Jesus. He leads us. He loves us. He cares for us. He is why we are who we are. You say, well, who are we? Well, I've distilled it down to a sentence for you. Perhaps you'd like to write it down. We are a rejoicing, praying, consumed, listening community who holds fast to good and abstains from every form of evil. And I guess we should add to that, and we work real hard at it, because it's hard work. 
But our labor is not in vain because we're not left alone. We have the promise and the power of the Spirit. You see what we do? We're able to write all of what we do is all for Jesus. And so who are we? I've distilled this into a sentence for you. Who are we? We are a rejoicing, praying, consumed, listening community who holds fast to good and abstains from every form of evil. I guess that we could also add to that. And we work hard to do it. Not in our own strength, but in the power that God provides. And listen, we do this all for Jesus. So let's do this. Let's everyone stand this morning. All of us stand. Leave your Bible on your pew. Take your hands. Hold them out. Open them up. Now look around. Look around. Look around. Here's the church. With your hands open, in the quiet of your own heart, just say, here I am, Jesus. What do you want these hands to do? How can I serve you? Father, you see every hand, and you hear every heart. Father, here we are, presenting ourselves to you. Lead us. Show us what you want us to do. Use us for your glory. We are yours. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you would like to learn more about how we're taking the gospel from Startville to the ends of the earth, visit www.fbcstartville.com.